Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Okay, so welcome back to the waiting room revolution. Today's guest is Liz O'Riordan. Uh, she is a breast surgeon from the UK and also the author of The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. And we're so glad you could join us today. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. It's an honor to be talking to you both today. I, I thought it'd be great if you kind of tell us a little bit more about your story as a clinician and then also as a patient. Sure. So I was a consultant breast surgeon, which is the highest rank in the UK. I get confused with the US whether it's attending or resident. And I'd been a consultant for a couple of years and I just turned 40. I just done my first triathlon. I thought that having a fantastic life and I had a lump in my breast and I'd had a couple of cysts before and I'd had a normal mammogram nine months before. So I wasn't worried. And it was my mum who said, look, will you just go and get it checked out? Because I'm worried if you're not. And my mammogram was normal and I had an ultrasound and I turned to look at the screen because I do scans myself and I saw a cancer. And most patients are drip fed information. You have a lump, you have a biopsy, you get the results, you have surgery, you get the results. But I knew in that split second that because I was 40 and it was big, I'd need chemo. I'd need a mastectomy. I had a good idea what my 10 year survival was in that split second. And it was like, it was like another reality. I was kind of floating above my head, looking down at what was happening and in denial and kind of still in denial now. So I had chemo up front to try and shrink it. And I realized there's a hell of a lot I did not know about chemotherapy. So I didn't realize you lost all your body hair, free Brazilian and leg wax on the NHS. I had no idea. I just thought it was the hair in your head. And then I had the hard decision about, do I have a reconstruction? As a reconstructive surgeon, do I go flat? I went for an implant in the end and I had radiotherapy. And it was the most grueling nine months I've ever been through. And I have no idea how my elderly patients cope. There was so much I didn't know. And um, I want to come back to your Walk to Road podcast because I really wish I knew that before I went in. Um, because my chemo worked. It had shrunk everything away. And when I went to get my results after surgery, it was the 23rd of December. And I dressed up. I tried to draw my eyebrows on. I thought, yes, I'm going to get good news. And I remember sitting in that waiting room, surrounded by couples, squeezing each other's hands, looking at the floor, waiting to find out they had cancer, thinking, thank God I never have to go through that myself because I know my results are good. And my surgeon had to tell me that there were actually 13 centimeters of lobular cancer left in my breast and two of my nodes were positive. And that was the first time I properly got bad news as I wasn't expecting it. And again, I knew how bad that was, but my husband didn't. And it was really hard working out how much information to give him. I was back at work for a year, which is incredibly difficult. And then I had a local regional recurrence on my chest wall. So my implant came out, I had another dose of radiotherapy, I had my ovaries out, and I was forced to retire because my left shoulder didn't work properly and psychologically it was really hard. And I now spend my time talking and writing to try and improve patient care for cancer patients because there's so much you don't know until you've been on the other side and you think you're doing a good job and I don't think we are and it's not our fault, we just don't know it. Mm -hmm. One of my questions is this idea of you talked about, you know, as a, as a as a doctor, like what you were trained in and what you think is 
good care. And then now on the other yeah. side, you realize that maybe we're missing something. So I'd love to just hear some of your perspectives on what are some of the big things that you realize that is important to a, to quality that maybe you didn't consider yeah. initially. So for me as a surgeon, quality was all about doing the right thing at the right time to the right person, making sure it's safe and it's backed up by evidence and having pretty scars to show at conferences. And I had patients flash me in a supermarket to say, look at my breast, isn't the scar great? It was, I thought I was doing a good job. I never talked about sex. I never talked about exercise. I rarely mentioned the signs of recurrence because when's a good time to say that? I used to say, yeah, you'll have a few menopausal symptoms, but most women grow out of it, assuming someone else would talk about it. And then I was hit with an instant menopause and vaginal dryness and painful sex because of the menopausal symptoms that you have. And I realized the hardest part for me was almost when your doctor says goodbye, see you in five years, and you're left thinking, is this a cough or a cough? And is this to the day it comes back? And how do I cope with the hot flushes of night sweats and a lack of sleep? Why as I as a surgeon did not know what my patients are going through and why have I never heard any of my peers talk about it and learn how to help them? And it's hard for patients to bring those subjects up because they, I mean, we're British, we don't talk about sex, but who do you talk to? You don't want to share it with your GP, let alone your consultant. And the decisions patients have to make in the weeks we give them, it's just not enough time. But I didn't know any of that. Another huge thing was I used to tell patients, don't Google. I will tell you what you need to know. And it's just horseshit. I'm sorry, because it's the first thing. It's the first place I went. And I bet if either of you were diagnosed with a serious illness, you would go to Google. You wouldn't go to your doctor's website. And I was amazed and terrified about the information out there on charity websites, blogs, forums, the questions patients asking. You'd think they don't pay any attention to what the doctor says. And you don't because you're still processing. I've got cancer. You've just spent 10 minutes describing complex reconstructive surgery and I'm still thinking, will my hair fall out? Will I be dead in a year? I bet most of the patients that you meet um, are needing information about the here and now. Yeah. Um, And a lot of what we're trying to um, change is this ability to balance information about the here and now, but also be able to future gaze a little bit. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, how do you see that playing out um, when, you know, when people do need to know, you know, what the treatment options are and, you know, what the treatment plan is and, you know, get going on things, um, how do you balance that with helping them understand the longer view or the big picture? I think it's really hard because there are different types of patients. I've had women who I've told have breast cancer and they've run out the room screaming and come back an hour and a half later. And I've had other women who say, yep, yeah, fine, get the phone out, book the operation in the, in the diary. And everybody wants and needs different amounts of information at, at different times. Mm-hmm. And I think also as a doctor, you develop a patter, you have a spiel, you think what you're saying is right for the patients and no one gives you feedback. Your Mm -hmm. nurse isn't going to tell you that you make women cry because that analogy is bad. And Mm -hmm. I think as long as patients get given all the information or told where to access it. So you have to know about the complex surgery, the treatments, but they need to know the surgery might fail. The reconstruction might not work. You're going to have side effects of this tablet for the next five years. 
we need to talk about how we get you back to work, how exercise can help and the symptoms of recurrence and that you might die from it. And I have no way of knowing that. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, I had to do it with my husband. When my, when my cancer came back, I was only 43 and he still thought he died before me. He's older than me. He's a surgeon as well. And I had to make him admit to me out loud that I might die before him because of cancer. And he couldn't bear to think of it because it was just too painful. Mm-hmm. And once we'd had that discussion, it was right, right. We both know what may happen. We can move on. Mm-hmm. And it's how you help patients realize that anything can happen despite the best treatment in the world. There's good mm-hmm. luck, there's bad luck out mm-hmm. there. But I think a lot of doctors are scared about talking about recurrence. When do you tell someone it might happen? Mm-hmm. There's never a good time in the consultation. And we need to make sure that at some point they have access to that information and their primary care physicians know what to look out for. Mm-hmm. It's not always obvious red flag symptoms. Yeah, it's not just knowing when to talk about the possibility of recurrence. I mean, going back, even revealing the devastating diagnosis, even that conversation can be very difficult, right? Because there's just so much information out there. There's so many treatment options. So it's not so black and white that a diagnosis is a death sentence. And so it's hard to share all that information delicately in a short conversation. So often for breast cancer, there's no, there's no warning signs. You've not had like for colorectal cancer or lung cancer, mm-hmm. months of a cough or rectal bleeding or weight loss. It's a lump. You're sure it's nothing. It's mm-hmm. cancer. It's a huge shock. And we get 10 minutes in the clinic to say, it's cancer. What are your medical problems? What surgery do you need? What treatment? And the patient is just going, hang on. What did they say? And it's almost too much information. I think a lot of women, I'd love to be able to have said, I'm going to give you this and I want you to go away and I want you to let me know the day before the surgery what you want to have than making a decision then because it's too much. And it's sometimes we just overload them. Just mm-hmm. just tell me what I should do. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. Can I go back to what you were talking about, this idea of walking two roads? Because you do talk a little bit about this in your in your TED Talk and this idea of, you know, thinking about, you know, dying right away at that moment, just, you know, the sort yeah. of the shock, but also hoping and looking forward and being optimistic. And what was that like? You know, does that metaphor hold for you, the walking two roads and and hoping for the best and planning for the rest for your journey? Did that really sort of, was that an apt metaphor for you? Uh- I got there eventually. I'm a pessimist. I imagine the worst. I plan for the worst. So when my cancer came, when I got cancer, it was like, oh my God, it's going to be terrible. And in a weird, twisted way, I wanted to have chemotherapy. If I'm going to have cancer, I want a bad cancer. I want to do it properly, which makes no sense. But Mm -hmm. I wanted the sympathy because for a lot of breast cancer patients, it's day case surgery. They work through radiotherapy. No one knows they've had it. And it's very hard to get that support when physically on the outside you look well. You've not spent months in hospital. Mm-hmm. Time was a great healer. And I, there were moments in the middle of the night I went to a very dark place and I was Googling metastatic blogs. And I almost had to see just how bad it could be to satisfy my own curiosity. And then I could start to move forward and think, right, OK, mm-hmm. it might not happen. And I would obsess over the numbers. We use an algorithm called predict to help tell you what your chance of being alive is in 10 years. And I would obsess. I had about a 40% chance when it came back. But then I realized it's 50-50. It comes back or it doesn't. And I can exercise and I can eat healthily and it can still come back. So all I can do is live my life. And with about a year down the line, I got to a a place of the worst might happen, but I can't control it. And I'm going to look forward to the future. Mm -hmm. 
it took time because I knew too much. I've looked after metastatic cancer patients in hospital. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard not to picture yourself in that place when you've mm-hmm. got inside knowledge. Mm. So how do you keep yourself grounded? Um, you know, how you say, I can't control the cancer. So how do yeah. you exert a sense of control in your life? So I think, so it's funny, initially when during chemotherapy, I lost my sense of taste and I was just living off kind of crustless sandwiches. I thought, right, when it's finished, I'm going to eat really healthy and I'm going to juice. And no, I want to eat all the cake and beige food because they taste good. And it's kind of that the 80-20 rule. I'll have a glass of champagne if I want. Um, I, I exercise. There's so much evidence now to show that exercise can reduce the risk of recurrence. And I cycle, I swim, I lift weights in the gym. And that's me keeping my body strong, not only to prevent the cancer coming back, but to help me cope if it does come back. Mm-hmm. And it's that being able to help other people and use what I've learned is a way of bringing me joy and just feeling I'm doing something useful with what I've been through. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm seven years on now from my first diagnosis and I now don't think about cancer the first time I wake up and the second time I walk back and it's almost like did it really happen mm-hmm. the hard part for me is when I have a scan coming up and I'm sure you've heard the phrase scanxiety where you get that fear mm-hmm. or you have a lump and the fact that your doctor takes it seriously makes you worry because it might be something and that that is always a dark moment and then I'll kind of think oh my goodness it's all about the worst mm-hmm. But I, I just, I think it's time letting you realize you can't be pessimistic all the while. You have to accept it and deal with it, but then move on. But you can't teach anyone to do it and you can't force them to get there. What about you stayed resilient? What's familiar about you through your illness? It always comes down to helping people. And I like to be in control. And I'm very glad treatment is over and I have control of my life because I hated it. I, I wanted to tell my surgeon where to put the scar and what drains to use. Mm-hmm. And I found that very, very hard to give up that sense of, and it was losing my sense of identity because whenever I met people, I'd say, I'm a breast surgeon and, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not anymore. But it's that, it's just that the, the medic in me wants to help people and I've stayed true to that and I will carry on doing that in any way I can. Liz, I'm curious. We started this podcast because of a sense of frustration with only targeting clinicians to change. And so we wanted information in the hands of patients and families too. Now you've been giving talks at breast cancer conferences all over the world, talking to clinicians. My sense is that there are some who get it and really want to make the best patient experience. And there are others who are sort of stuck in their ways and want to rely strictly on randomized evidence. And so I'm wondering, Do you feel like there's a real opportunity for change, for changing clinician behavior and incorporating empathy and patient experience into this idea of quality? I think the real, you hit the nail on the head when you say there are doctors who want to learn and doctors who care, but they don't need to because they're already good. Mm -hmm. And one of the advantages of me being a doctor and a patient is that healthcare professionals will listen to me. Mm -hmm. Whenever I went to a conference, it was very rare there'd be a patient speaking. They were often put in the nurses section or the doctors would just leave and go for coffee. I don't want to hear a patient witter on. I want to go and network. Mm-hmm. And I went to one conference in Portugal run by Fatima Cordozo, and they had young women with metastatic breast cancer who had it when they were pregnant with young children talking in between the chemos. So you couldn't leave the room. And I learned so much 
from hearing what it was like to be a patient being told, you're 25, you've got a child, you're going to be dead in a year, you can't find access to trials. And I think I love talking to doctors and nurses, but I love talking to medical students Mm -hmm. and just saying, imagine what it's like to get bad news. Think about the language you use. Little words can make a huge difference. Could you digitally signpost to help those patients? And I think we've got a huge job to do to get in there early so it becomes normal. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to change people who who are stuck in their habits and their ways. Yeah. And I think it's telling patients, doctors are people. You don't love everyone you meet. You're not going to like the doctor you meet. Some patients want a doctor who's excellent knife skills, but a terrible bedside manner. And they're not going to hold your hand. That's what the nurses are for. But if you can get in early and teach the student doctors and nurses and realize you're doing this to treat patients. And I always end my talks by saying, you're going to be a patient yourself one day. Mm-hmm. You will be on the other side. One in two of us are going to get cancer. Just, just remember that. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the funny behaviors that uh, patients and families will describe to us, um, the reactions of doctors that seem so callous and uncaring, yeah. really come from a place of um, helplessness, you know, yeah. clinicians feeling helpless that they didn't know what they could offer if they couldn't fix the problem. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you that I think medical students are the biggest bang for their buck, right? Yeah. Um, but the problem is, is that they have to have more than just lectures. They have to have role models. And so um, it's going to take some time uh, yeah. before we can groom enough uh, medical students that become the future role models. Uh, but right now it's tough, right? It is tough. And I wonder whether just getting patients to record short one, two minute blogs, talking about the good and the bad that they can just dip into because we don't have time, but just little experiences. A doctor used these words to tell me this. You think, oh my God, they said that. Mm-hmm. I won't do that. I think just little patients have the power to change everything. Mm-hmm. They have the power they can harness and it's just driving them and getting the right people to hear them. But it's as a doctor, you don't know whether you can touch someone again, pre COVID. Can I, can I hug someone when I've given them bad news? And it, it, it's it's so it's so hard to deal with it mm-hmm. and I think doctors need help and is it okay to show emotion to your patients and to be mm-hmm. vulnerable and say I want to cry because I can't help you and this is really really bad mm-hmm. it's okay to show emotion I think it's also okay to show your juniors that you go and cry in the toilets between patients because it's so sad because you can't help everybody mm-hmm. because if doctors are seen as superheroes who don't show emotion the juniors think oh my god how am I going to cope you know, uh, um, having said all of that, though, again, it's back to medical students and where do they um, seek mentorship and training, yeah. coaching. Again, right now, they have to come and do a palliative care um, elective, uh, Yeah, you know, if they want to see that kind of care. But isn't that so sad? Because really, if you're training as a surgeon, you should see that kind of care from your um surgeon faculty, or if you're doing internal medicine, you really shouldn't have to come expose yourself to palliative care specialists um, to to see that type of, um, you know, truthful, honest, person-centered kind of care. But we don't train people other than palliative care specialists to do it. And I think, I think doctors, 
they don't like admitting that someone's going to die because you often feel you failed. So as a breast surgeon, I didn't really deal with any of the metastatic patients because they went straight to the oncologists. But as a junior trainee, I would often refer people to them, but probably not as much as I should because my bosses didn't tell me to. And although I knew palliative was kind of things like chronic pain control, I was brought to believe that it was, you know, the last couple of days of life. Can they come and sort out the syringe driver, please? Thank you very much. Because I had no exposure to it. I maybe had one lecture at medical school. I'd never really seen it. It was, they were the medics and I was in the surgical tower. And I really regret not having that knowledge and being able to get them involved at a much earlier stage. Because the worst that happens is the patient doesn't die, but they've been well looked after. Mm -hmm. And especially, Mm -hmm. I've been reading the notes of people who died from COVID and they, they really struggle in the middle of the night with the respiratory symptoms. And it's not just cancer patients. And I think of so many people who could have benefited from that expert advice, but didn't realize they could reach out. Mm-hmm. And it's almost educating the patients that they can ask for it, that the families can ask for a referral if the doctors haven't gone there yet, as well as the medical students that call you guys in. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> but you are you you do and it's no but you you look You're after amazing. the patient as a whole no you guys it's I remember a friend of mine went on a palliative care block and she said it was the best six months of my life because it was true holistic medicine it was mm-hmm. mind it was body it was soul every single part of their life was thought of and their family was included as well mm-hmm. whereas I was just involved in the abdomen that's all I cared about mm-hmm. because I just wanted to get it and operate and it really made me think Yeah, there's still a barrier and stigma around palliative care for sure. But I also think we do people, our patients and families a disservice when we say things like, um, there's nothing more I can do for you. Or, you know, I have no crystal ball. We talk about that a lot. But even with there's nothing more we can do for you. If we could just say, you know, now what can I do for you? There's always something, isn't there? Yeah. What now? So now what? Um, how yeah. can I support you? Um, yeah. you know, now that the lanes are changing, um, yeah. let's refocus what role I play in your care. And yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. um, we, it's iatrogenic suffering is what we have going on, right? Where yeah. we set people up, um, to feel traumatized. Yeah. It's that goodbye, you're done. I'm passing you on to the oncologist. I don't want to see you anymore. Whereas if the breast surgeon yeah. said, you're probably not going to make it, but my door's always open. You know you'll never see them again, but they just feel they still care about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But you don't get that as a doctor because you've never seen it from the other side. A lot of doctors don't understand. Mm-hmm. Although we do have a lot of doctors who say, you know, you're weak today, but go home, try to get stronger, eat more, gain some weight, and we will reconsider treatment. And I'll book that follow-up with you in two months, knowing, knowing that that's not going to happen. And I hate that because that is false hope. That is false hope. I've had friends who've gone through that. Yeah. And then the the relatives are angry because the doctor said, if they gain weight, they get another treatment. It's like, well, there's nothing left. Why did you lie to me? And then their grief is anger and pain and hatred instead of sad acceptance that this is what cancer can do. And they just turned an expected death into a sudden death, yeah. right? Because and they couldn't plan, they couldn't prepare. Right. 
-hmm. because the doctor's too scared to say I'm really sorry yeah yeah you know yeah it's interesting because the clinical work is so rewarding as you mentioned um it's the advocacy and the systems issues and the defining what is palliative care demystifying uh what is palliative care um and that everyone should be buying into it and we should be training all nurses and all doctors. That's the part that is exhausting yeah. for palliative care doctors. The clinical work keeps us going. It's the yeah. other stuff that is just... Banging your head against a wall. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is why, you know, it was part of the impetus for us doing uh, the podcast was because you can only bang your head so many times trying to teach already graduated clinicians, um, you know, how to do this and administrators and CEOs, hospital people, you know, so we said, you know, we're leapfrogging over the middleman now. CN and I are going right to the consumer and shedding light what's happening behind the curtain. (laughs) It's the best way. Patients need honesty. They'll find it on Google if they don't hear it otherwise. And I think they need to know what might happen and what to expect. But And that's why the podcast is brilliant, of just giving them both sides of the story and actually being open and honest and talking about the stuff that doctors won't talk about. People don't know what they don't know. And if you don't know what to look for or the questions to ask... You don't get the information. In some ways, what we are doing parallels what you did with your book, right? You talked about how you, uh, as an, you are now sort of on the other side with your tribe and getting all these tips and tricks, which was what led you to write the complete guide to breast cancer. And yeah. we had realized we had seen so many uh, patient stories. I know Sammy has treated them at the bedside, have interviewed them and providers, and we had sort of those insider tips too that people just didn't know what to ask. And no how to navigate this. And so we wanted to kind of do something similar in a way. And we, and we couldn't make it so specific because everybody's journey is different. So it really had to be skills and principles so that each person could get what they needed. But you were saying at the right time at based on the information comfort. I think I, so when I was diagnosed as well as just scrolling Google for every blog I could find. So as I'm embarrassed to say as a breast cancer surgeon, I had never been on the big breast cancer charity website to read the posts and the information my patients are being given because it wasn't my job to care. Mm-hmm. And doctors tell you what will happen to you. It's patients who tell you how to cope. Mm-hmm. And I didn't meet another patient in the flesh during my diagnosis. Um, but I found people through Twitter and Facebook who literally saved my life. They told me to exercise. They told me what to drink. They told me what to eat. My doctors and nurses didn't have a clue. And I I didn't know how ill I was meant to be during chemo. So I suffered in silence because I thought you're meant to be sick. And I got told off. Why didn't you call us? Mm. Well, no one told me to. And so I wrote the book with Professor Trisha Greenhouse. And between us, and we're both, she's a professor, I'm a surgeon, we bought 20 books written by patients to try and find out what it would be like to be a patient. Mm. And it's why I wrote part of the book. We go, we go everything from diagnosis to treatment to sex, exercise, dying, the mental side of it, the PTSD, what to tell your family. Mm-hmm. But it was lists of questions. And mm-hmm. I think when I was a doctor, at the end of the consultation, you'd either shut the notes or close down the screen and sit back, fold your arms, any questions. Mm-hmm. And when I was a patient on the other side, you know, there's a busy waiting room. You're anxious, you're scared, you just want to run. And I won't mention the pain that's had me up crying all night for the last month. Mm-hmm. But if doctors said at the beginning, not at the diagnosis appointment, but if they said at the beginning, what questions do you have? 
So I've got the time to talk and listen and hear and we tell patients what questions to ask. I think it would hugely improve that communication mm -hmm. in a clinic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, many people tell us that they get information uh, when they ask questions, um, but what they're missing, we realize is the meaning making. Yes. And so there are lots of doctors who will entertain lots of information and the patients don't know what it means. No, they don't understand the terminology. And no. as a doctor going in, sorry to interrupt, when I go in to tell someone they've got cancer, I know it. I've been in a, a tumor board. I know all their notes. It's really okay. I'm like down with it. But to the patient, mm -hmm. it's fresh. And mm -hmm. we don't give them time to catch up mm -hmm. and they don't understand. So I would love if we asked patients if they wanted to record the consultations. Mm -hmm. So they can then play that back to their loved ones. Because patients, especially in COVID, when they go in alone, have, especially finding out you've got metastatic cancer, go mm -hmm. home, husband asks, what did the doctor say? I've no idea. What mm -hmm. did they say this? I can't remember. But mm -hmm. if you could record that, so they, they don't have to be a doctor anymore. They can mm -hmm. let the doctor speak to their loved ones. I mm -hmm. think that would be a huge impact. Yeah. So many patients feel that they have to be on their best behavior for their doctor and that yeah. they have to um, do well for their doctor. And, um, you know, they get <laughs> even dressed up, look their best, oh, yes. behave the be their best, um, be quiet, don't take up too much time, don't ask too many questions. Um, I want my body to behave so that my doctor can feel good about being my doctor. God forbid you fart in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so but you know it it's it becomes a barrier to um you know being real really yeah um, it's it's a power imbalance isn't it yeah especially if you are paying again in, in the uk it's free but if you are paying to see a doctor mm -hmm. again it's that it's that power imbalance and mm -hmm. it's very hard to react how you want to react when you feel you can't scream or cry or swear in front of the doctor Mm -hmm. or um recur or um, yes not do well on the treatment it's your fault you failed have yeah. side effects or decide you yeah. don't want to go into the clinical trial yeah I felt I had a lot of problems with pain and every time I rang my breast kidneys I felt they're gonna think oh my god it's her again mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they didn't but I felt as a patient I was bothering yeah. them and I didn't want yeah. to where does that come from? Why do patients feel so worried about that? Did you feel you wanted to be a good patient? Yes. I I wanted to be the best patient I could. I wanted everything to go right. I didn't want to have a complication. I didn't want to be the one struggling who couldn't cope when so many other people are. And I think as a patient, it's a unique experience, but to doctors, it's ordinary. And patients don't realize that there are 500,000 other people who all have the problems you have and it's completely normal you don't know that you you're alone in your own experience mm -hmm. and I think by for me it was connecting with other women having chemo at the same time that made me realize oh okay it's normal not to go to the toilet for 10 days and I should and it's fine to have bleeding piles and I can talk about that it's normal <laughs> but otherwise I'd have been sat at home embarrassed thinking I don't want to tell them oh, it's, it's not normal you. to be a patient <laughs> I was going to say, we should have told you we don't talk like that on our podcast. 
Or just do you kidding. not? Okay. No, we Sorry. do. We do. I mean, just I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's true. You, I, I swear I lost my pride and my dignity. I had to do a manual evacuation on myself because I was so constipated. And then I got told off because I might have caused a rectal abscess. I've done colorectal surgery. But it's that you're not in control of what's happening to you and you don't know what's the right thing to say and do. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't want to do the wrong thing. And it's so hard to deal with cancer as well as that side of, is it my fault it came back? Is it because I had that glass of wine? Or is it because I didn't go on a vegan juice diet? Is it something I've done? Mm-hmm. And the number of patients I talk to who think they got breast cancer because it's their fault. You know, they're overweight or they smoked or they got stressed. The guilt that they put on themselves. Mm-hmm. So hard. Mm-hmm. That's one thing we have realized during this podcast, that the cues are coming from the things doctors are saying or not saying or their body language, or the way the waiting room is laid out, you know, or the way they get information or cannot get information. All of this points to this power imbalance. It's hard to get patients and families involved and to be part of the agenda setting. I used to call it the, just one more thing, doctor. Mm-hmm. It's often, you, you've spent 20 minutes with the patient, you're running late, they go to leave, their hands on the door, and they say, just one more thing. So, oh, did I tell you about the two years of rectal bleeding I've had? Or the, mm-hmm. And that's the one thing that's really, really playing on their mind. Mm-hmm. And you're lucky if they tell you because it can help. So I had a woman who was going to have chemotherapy and huge surgery, but she had five horses. Mm-hmm. And her father was disabled and she looked after him. And if she had all this treatment, she, she wouldn't be able to, to live but she was too scared to say no and tell me why. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could encourage patients to go and say, right, these are my questions, mm-hmm. it will help the doctors. And doctors need to realize, as you said, it's not just for us. There are things mm-hmm. we need to get through, but we're not the one living with the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. So if you were to go back and change one thing about the way you practiced, Ooh. That's a hard question, but there's what so comes, much. <laughs> what comes to mind? There are two, and it's really hard. But I think for me, it's it's talking about sex and intimacy, mm. because and it's not just cancer patients. I I know an amazing physio in the UK who works with ITU patients, and people have spent months on ITU, and for them to go home to their marital bed. It's just hell on earth because they're so used to being nursed in a single bed and to actually get naked in front of their partner Mm -hmm. and be touched again is just completely alienating, but there's no support. And so many patients who have cancer treatment, you're made to feel grateful that you're alive. Mm -hmm. And you almost feel the doctor thinks, what what do you mean you want a sex life? I know a 60-year-old nurse who had head and neck cancer and she said, It took her five years to learn the one place she could French kiss her husband was in the shower when her mouth was wet enough because she hated artificial saliva and nobody talked about it. Hmm. And a young woman with an ileostomy who asked her surgeon, what do I do on a one night stand? And he was like, horrified. You mean people with stomas have sex? Hmm. And all the young women I've treated and put into an instant menopause, it's just a bit of hot flushes. It's not. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be open and honest and make sure that one person in every cancer team is talking to every patient and saying, you're not alone. You may have problems. There are things we can do to help because it's not just about treating the cancer and getting good survival statistics. It's about your patients living and actually having a quality of life for as long as they have. And Mm -hmm. sex is like a human right. And I almost every woman I've spoken to, and I felt this myself, I wanted my husband to divorce me 
and go and marry a woman with two healthy breasts and a libido Mm. because of the guilt and the shame and the damage I thought I was doing to my marriage. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea women felt like that because I'd never been through it. And I think it's talking about those uncomfortable things and telling patients you can ask. It's okay. Intimacy um, is something that I don't think we do justice um, in palliative care either. Um, And it's so important. Um, So that's resonating with me and my specialty as well, what you're saying. Uh, Because, of course, in comes the hospital bed. Um, Yeah. And so you're suddenly suggesting someone separate from, you know, their marital bed for the first after 50 years of sleeping together yeah yeah it's so yeah so um yeah intimacy is something I think that we could do a much better job at as well yeah uh in our field even though we are perfect in every other way (laughs) you are that is that is one area where I think we're not so perfect no, so maybe you get the hospital bed, then you order a reclining chair so they can sleep yeah. set up, a bed big enough. It's or telling them it's okay to get in bed with them and snuggle up, even though it's a single bed for a cuddle. Yeah. You yeah. can still be very intimate, and mm-hmm. but we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Why would someone dying of cancer want to be intimate with their husband? Mm-hmm. Why would they want, you know, it's like they're humans. They need mm-hmm. that touch, and it's okay. You're not going to catch it. You're not going to hurt them. Well, especially at home when we, the hospital bed usually comes to the main floor and usually it's the converted dining room or the front hallway. And which is a really sexy environment. Yeah. Really sexy with the commode right beside the bed. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it's not so sexy, but it could be. Candles and changing things and just, it's like, and telling people it's okay if you want to do this. Yeah, you can get into bed with them. You can touch them. You can give them a massage. You can, you can still be partners for moments. I think what both of you are discussing is patient-centered care, but we only get to that if we talk openly about what is happening, and we still hear that there is a reluctance by providers, but also fear on the part of patients and families to really want to talk openly about what the future will hold. For many or, people. or they're protecting their loved ones. They yes. don't want their loved ones to yeah. know they have cancer, but deep down, mm-hmm. and if they don't know, they can't get the palliative care, the financial support. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. I, yeah. I politely tell relatives that I'm going to tell them and they have no say in it. It leads mm-hmm. to shame. It leads to that whole feeling of shame and, and guilt and just and when we don't talk and about secrecy the truth. Right? And yeah, yeah. It's, it's wrong. That it's so true. I mean, that's one huge lesson that I've learned in my work is just that, um, information is grounding, whether or not it's good or bad. I mean, people would rather have good information, but no information or secrets is the worst, the worst. It amplifies everything, anxiety, insomnia, um, distrust. It's the worst thing you can do for someone who usually knows there's something going on. Yeah. 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 But, uh, and actually it's, 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 I'm, so I, when I was first diagnosed, um, we didn't have electronic portals. It was hard to get access to your data and your results. And I'm thinking, actually, I'm the one who spent 45 minutes in, MRI, in an MRI scanner with cod liver capsules on my nipples listening to Justin Bieber. I would like to see the picture of my results and read the scan because it's my body. I've had the test. But as a doctor, I thought, no, I'm the one in charge. I manage the data. But I was wrong. 
And I think if patients want access to their data and their reports, mm-hmm. we should give it to them because it's their mm-hmm. body. And they'll go on Google if they don't understand. They've already been there already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's well, doctors realizing that they don't have the power anymore in this electronic age. Mm-hmm. Liz, do you have any final advice to patients or families listening on how to have a better illness experience? You're not alone. There's always someone out there. And and I think if you don't know anyone, there's wonderful resources and forums on social media, um, Mm -hmm. things like Facebook, local charities that your doctors and nurses probably won't know exist. Mm -hmm. But just do a little bit of research and find groups and reach out and get that support that you need. It is amazing the security you can get from talking to someone else who's been where you have. So Mm -hmm. I... I had a wonderful nurse ask my husband if she could talk to me on my first day of chemo. And she said, right, I had this a year ago. Here's a goodie bag of things you need. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Hmm. And I then passed it on to someone else. Hmm. And I think it's just sharing that information to help patients with the stuff that they don't know they mm-hmm. don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what we, we wanted to do for, for all, you know, yeah. serious illness in general. Yeah. You tell patients, you've listened to this podcast, you, t- you share it with someone else who's just been diagnosed and say, this helped me this will help you mm-hmm. carry the flame and pass the knowledge forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful that we got to meet today, Liz. Oh, it's been lovely. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.